0: All right, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 4. We're looking at the end of Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. It's really all one story. And um, if you're using the Bible in your seats, you should find that on page 772 or thereabouts. There are some of those Bibles in the seats. And what a passage this is. What a way to kick off, you know, the first Sunday of kind of the fall season. Welcome back, everyone. (laughs) I have a lot of questions about this passage, and I'm sure you do too. And some of them we're going to see have answers, and some of them may not have answers. In today's passage, Luke pauses from what he's been telling us about uh, the pressures that Jesus' followers have been facing from the outside in Jerusalem, from the leaders of Jerusalem, who arrested the apostles and in no uncertain terms ordered them to stop talking about Jesus. And in response, we saw how the the apostles had boldly answered, we can't stop, we have to obey God, not human beings. And then they had gathered together, we saw last Sunday, in in a room, and they had prayed, not for protection, but for boldness to keep telling people about Jesus and for power to keep performing miracles to show people about Jesus. Well, now Luke pauses that story, and he gives us another summary description of what the early followers of Jesus were like. He does this periodically as the book of Acts gets going. And this one at the end of chapter 4 is largely a reminder and a repetition of some of what Luke had already told us back at the end of Acts chapter 2, about what the... um, what the early believers became after the amazing events of Pentecost happened when Jesus baptized them with the Holy Spirit. In particular, Luke reminds us of two things. One, in verse 33, Luke tells us again about the leaders of Jesus' followers. He says, With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the apostles' task. This is their role as leaders. It's to be witnesses about Jesus, and particularly to the resurrection of Jesus, which they had seen and experienced firsthand. And uh, the apostles are doing this with boldness and with power, which we've seen already means both powerful proclamation and also powerful signs and wonders, miracles, both show and tell, right? We've, We've seen that several times already. And then two, Luke tells us about the fellowship among the people. And this word fellowship in the Bible, it's koinonia in Greek. It does not mean chit-chat over coffee. Even though that's how we use the word today. I understand that. That's not, when you see fellowship in the Bible, that's not what they're talking about. They didn't drink coffee, I don't think. But but anyway, what fellowship, what koinonia means, it means having in common. It means sharing. Sharing. The the adjective form, koine, is used in verse 32 when it says that they shared everything. That they had everything in koine, literally. And so listen, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That's fellowship. That's koinonia. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That is fellowship in the Bible. So this raises two questions already in our our passage. First, Why are they selling their possessions? Is this some sort of commune or early communism? Isn't this behavior irresponsible? You know, a lot of Bible interpreters claim that it is, as we'll see. Second, what does it mean that they put the money at the apostles' feet? Why not put it in the hands of the apostles or or something like that? And the answer to this seems to have to do with recognizing the apostles' authority. And with with a a show of respect and submission to their leaders, placing it at their feet. And we're going to see by the end of the story that God just increases the respect and the authority in in relation to Peter in particular. Well, then Luke tells us specifically um, about one case of someone selling a field and placing the proceeds at the apostles' feet. The man is Barnabas. Luke introduces him because Barnabas is going to be an important figure later in the story. In fact, he's going to become an apostle himself, as we'll see later in chapter 14, verse 14. But also Luke introduces him because Luke is about to draw a contrast between what Barnabas does here and what another couple do. And so then Luke introduces us to this other couple, Ananias and Sapphira, who also sell some property. But unlike Barnabas and unlike everyone else, This couple secretly agree with each other to keep for themselves some of the money that they get from selling the land, and then Ananias takes what's left and places it at the apostles' feet. And then here comes the huge surprise, the first huge surprise in this story. Peter speaks up and challenges Ananias, verse 3. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart That you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't lied just to human beings, but to God. So this raises so many questions, right? Uh, First, how does Peter know that they didn't give the full amount of the sale? And then second, what exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do that was so wrong? And then third, what does it mean that they lied to the Holy Spirit and to God? Well, then the story gets even more disturbing. After Peter calls out Ananias, we read in verse 5, Ananias fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, they wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. And so again, questions. Why and how does Ananias die? And and isn't this a, a brutally harsh consequence? I mean, what happened to grace and forgiveness, we might wonder? Well, the situation continues. About three hours later, Ananias' wife, Sapphira, comes in. Her husband's already buried, and she doesn't even know that he's dead. Either They couldn't reach her or they they didn't tell her, but they certainly didn't wait for her. Ananias had been buried quickly in dishonor with none of the regular mourning rituals, which were so important in that culture and would go on for days with all the family involved. And so as Sapphira arrives, Peter asks her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And yes, she replies, that's the price. And Peter says verse 9, "How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also." And at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. And so great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events, right? <laughs> Sapphira too, why both of them? So many questions that we have about this passage. And the way it disturbs us. Well, what I'd like to do is just work through some of these questions and see what answers, or see what the answers might have to teach us this morning. So, first question back up in chapter four. What's up with everyone selling their property and giving it to those in need? Was this irresponsible? As I mentioned, a number of Bible scholars claim it is. They point out that later in Acts, Paul takes up a collection from believers out in Asia Minor and Europe for the believers back in Jerusalem because they're so poor. And and so the scholars say, see, they were irresponsible. That's why they're so poor and everyone else had to help them out. They should have held on to what they had for a rainy day. And and, you know, it's not just Bible scholars today who criticize the early believers for what what happens here. It, It was... Uh, The believers' contemporaries as well. Greg Keener, uh, in his Bible background commentary remarks, such generosity reportedly continued among Christians well into the second century, and it was long ridiculed by pagans. The early believers were ridiculed for this until pagan values finally overwhelmed the church and the church stopped sharing. I'd like to suggest that many of us today also agree that these believers were irresponsible. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but we say it by our behavior all the time. After all, we don't sell our investments to help those in need. And that says a lot about what we think about these folks. Well, Luke disagrees with all of us. And the book of Acts disagrees. The picture it paints here of these believers is entirely positive. And guess what? What the believers do here is totally in line with the Bible. In fact, Luke's line in verse 34 that there there was no needy person among them is an allusion back to Deuteronomy 15. That's an Old Testament passage uh, about the year of Jubilee. And how God's people had a responsibility to forgive the debts of one another. To help those in need so that everyone had enough so that, Deuteronomy 15 says, there will be no needy per people among God's people. And, and that old, that's God's Old Testament, that's his vision throughout the Old Testament. That's why God put into place many laws and practices in the law of Moses to help those who were poor. From the year of Jubilee in Deuteronomy 15, to the release of slaves every seven years, to gleaning, to the role of the kinsman redeemer in that culture and the families of that culture, to the tithes that went to the orphan and the widow and the immigrant. God expects his people to help those in need. And Jesus continues this in the New Testament. He tells the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And it's not just the rich, rich young ruler. He tells his followers in Luke twelve thirty three, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. After all, Jesus also says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that you cannot serve both God and money. I could go on. My, my point is that, that if we're surprised that the early followers of Jesus are selling what they have to help those in need. It's because we don't know the Bible. Or, or what it says about possessions. It's because we, like the pagan contemporaries of the early believers, have pagan values when it comes to our stuff. And our money. It's the hard truth for the American church, for the Western church. What we see the early believers doing here in Acts is is just a perhaps more dramatic expression of how God has always expected his people to treat one another. Why? Because because in the case of, of we who follow Jesus, Jesus says we are family. We are family. Remember, Jesus says in Luke 8, "My brother, or sorry, my mother, and my brothers, who are they? They are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That's my family." Jesus really expects his followers to be family to one another. And what does family do? They they sacrifice for one another. Good family, anyway. They help one another. There was a book that was popular maybe 15 years ago called Refrigerator Rights." I don't know if any of you read it. It, it, it made the point that, that when you have a true friend, it, when you have real community, you, you know that you do when you've given someone the right to go into your fridge without asking you. <laughs> right? Refrigerator rights. That's like family. And, and so it's no surprise that when, when they see... One of them have a need, they they do what they can to meet that need, these early followers of Jesus, because they know that they are family, even if it means selling their investments to help one another. What's really surprising to me, though, is this. Remember how many followers of Jesus there are at this point? If you go back to chapter 4, verse 4, there are 5,000 of them and counting. This is no longer just 120 people in a cozy upper room, you know, singing kumbaya with one another. This is a large group of people. Listen to what Luke says. All of the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. No one was selfish, Luke says. All of the believers were generous. All (laughs) 5,000? That is a miracle. <laughs> I mean, small groups of people, a few radical followers in a tight-knit community, I can understand that. We, we know that there are young people now and then today who live in group houses in urban city neighborhoods, and they share what they have. They're radically committed to Jesus and to their neighborhood and to one another. But that's not what Luke is saying here. Luke is saying everyone is living like this, 5,000 people and growing treating each other like family, generously, self-sacrificially. This is incredible. I think, in fact, this is a bigger miracle than the lame beggar Jesus healed that we saw a few weeks ago. Or, Or the room getting shaken like we saw last Sunday after they prayed. When God's Spirit so transforms people's hearts that they stop being selfish and they loosen their grip on their stuff and their investments, And they start treating each other like family, generously helping one another out. That is a miracle. And the early followers of Jesus, by and large, lived this way. They were known for it. In fact, church historians tell us that it's part of what made the early church so attractive to their their pagan neighbors and moved so many to follow Christ. People were longing to be part of a generous, compelling family like this. And I think people still are today. And you know, this kind of generosity, this kind of family spirit is here at CBC. It's here in our church community. I've heard so many stories of of people in this church who who, uh, uh, one of you will buy a computer for another one whose computer breaks down and, and needs a new one. Or uh, you'll, you'll give your used car to someone whose old ride breaks down. Or uh, you've helped to pay part of someone's college tuition. Or you've covered a month or two of their rent. Or you've given time and energy to, to help them move or to make them meals or to help them fix up their house. Many of us are learning to live as family. But there's others of us who haven't shown up to the party yet. Whose values are still pagan values in this area. Not biblical values, not Jesus' values. And God is inviting you. God is urging us to join the family. To be part of the party. That, I think, is the first message of this passage. That the Holy Spirit is making us a generous Well, now let's turn our attention to Ananias and Sapphira and discover the second message of this passage. I want you to appreciate the social pressure that these two must have felt to be generous, to sell their possessions and to give to those in need because everyone else is doing it, right? (laughs) To be a follower of Jesus was to live radically in community, to share selflessly and generously with those in need and evidently, Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of this community and they're torn because they want to be part of this new spiritual family. They they want to fit in. They want to be generous or at least to appear generous. But there's another tug on their hearts too. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe it's fear of, of letting go of their investments. Whatever it is, they, they just can't part with some of what they're selling. <clears throat> they, they feel the need to hold on to some of it, maybe for a rainy day, maybe just in case. So they're they're pulled, they're torn, they they, they want to join the party, they want to be part of this amazing, compelling family, but they also want to hold on to some security and some prosperity for themselves. And I guess they feel too ashamed to, to admit it. They say, <clears throat> you know, we're selling this property to, to help like everyone else, but um, we're keeping some of it as a personal stash. You know, they're afraid to just come out and, and, and say that. <clears throat> you know, they're afraid to say, because unlike you guys, we're a bit selfish, and uh, we're not so sure God will take care of us. So, you know, we'll give some, but we're going to hold on to some. That, that would be too embarrassing. You know, to to be honest about that. So they decide, you know what, we'll fake it. We'll pretend. We'll pretend we're giving it all, but, but secretly we'll keep some of it back for ourselves. Interestingly, this word in verse 2, kept back, that they kept back some for themselves. It's the same word used in the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites conquered Jericho and they were supposed to, to not take any of the plunder, but to devote it all to God. But Achan kept back some of the plunder for himself. And as a result, God, if you know the story, withdrew his blessing from his people until Achan's sin was uncovered and dealt with. And in that case, like this, Achan wound up being put to death. And so all of this helps to answer the question, what did Ananias and Sapphira do wrong? Peter's clear, they didn't have to sell their property or or give over the proceeds. The early church was not a commune, it was not communist. Believers had freedom to own property. So Ananias and and Sapphira's big sin wasn't selfishness per se. Their big fault was rather that they faked it. They claimed to be one sort of person, but actually they weren't at all. They claimed to be radically generous, but actually they were somewhat selfish and somewhat untrusting of God and only somewhat generous. So basically, in what they're claiming, they're hypocrites. They're posers. They're pretenders. They want to look one way when in fact they're another way. And the pressures in church to be this way can be big, right? Have you ever been tempted to pretend you're better than you really are? I can tell you as a pastor, I know the temptation. Because many of you expect a lot of me, right? The, the, the bar, the expectation is high. But I don't always feel so virtuous. I, I have my bad days. I have my bad attitudes sometimes. And so I'm tempted to pretend, and and you are tempted too sometimes, right? (laughs) What, What Acts is saying to us here is that this temptation is far more serious than we often think. Because not only does God want his family to be generous, God also wants us to be genuine. Genuine. Being real. Being honest is hugely important to God. God wants to work with what we really are, not with what we're pretending we are. That doesn't move us forward. Ananias and Sapphira should have just said to the apostles, you know, here's part of the money, which, you know, they, whether they said it or not, would, would, would basically be letting everyone know, we're not generous enough to give it all. We, we don't trust Jesus enough to do what others are doing. We're just going to have to be known as the selfish couple. Pray for us, y'all. <laughs> right? That's how everyone would see it. And that's exactly what they should have done. But that's hard, right? To, to admit our, our own shortcomings. And so these two fake it. They, they pretend. And this is a big problem in God's book. Peter puts it this way. Satan has filled your hearts. You've conspired to test God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. Now what does Peter mean they've lied to God? I mean, is he being overly uh, melodramatic? (laughs) Is he over-spiritualizing things? I don't think so. I think if you think about what it was like to be, part of that, those early believers, Peter is very aware that our faith is supposed to be about God, and that God is present among them, and that our worship, our fellowship, our generosity, let's not forget, it's not about us, it's about God. We're part of God's family. It's God's children that we're helping and serving, or not helping, or faking it in front of. And God is present, God is aware, and God takes it seriously. God is actually here with us. Well, another question, how does Peter even know? How does Peter know Ananias hasn't given him the full price of the sale? There's no evidence in the story that the rumor was going around and, you know, someone told Peter. Peter. So what this seems to be is what's often called today a word of knowledge. Where, where God shows us something we couldn't otherwise know. And it's related to prophecy, which if you remember back to the day of Pentecost, Peter quoted Joel's prophecy and said it was coming true that young and old, male and female, would all prophesy. And, and some of you have experienced this uh, one time or another, as, as have I. I remember being at a conference once, and we were broken up into twos and threes uh, to pray for one another uh, between a couple of the talks. And I was paired with with another pastor and with his wife, who I didn't know, I'd never met before. And after very brief introductions, we were praying for one another, and I was praying for the wife, and I just felt led to pray for her about a certain struggle. And afterwards, the pastor said, you must be a prophet, because that's exactly what she's going through. And um, this doesn't happen to me very often, but occasionally I'll just get a sense that something is true, even though I can't tell you rationally why I think it's true. And, And some of you have had this happen more often and more clearly than me. Well, here, Peter, this is happening to him. He's enabled by God to just know, to have a sense that the money Ananias has brought isn't the full amount of the sale even though Ananias is playing it off as if it is. And Peter's confident enough of this that he calls Ananias on it. And then what happens next? Ananias falls down dead. Now what's going on here? Well, well notice what the text does not say. It does not say that Peter pronounces a curse on Ananias, some kind of spiritual zap or something. It does not say that it doesn't even say that Peter knew or predicted that Ananias was going to die. Peter does rebuke Ananias, but Peter may well have been as surprised as anyone that Ananias immediately drops dead. I mean, wouldn't you be? (laughs) And and so what becomes clear in retrospect, I think what we're supposed to conclude is, is that in some way God strikes down Ananias, although the text doesn't directly say that either. And Peter is no doubt thinking about this, uh, praying hard about it, processing it, maybe talking, to, probably talking to others about it. And he's got three hours to, to think it through, in fact, before Sapphira comes in. And when she does, Peter offers her an opportunity to come clean so that she doesn't have to die like her husband Sapphira, is this really how much you got for the land? Imagine how it might have turned out differently for her if she had confessed. But Sapphira sticks with the deception. Maybe she's trying to cover for her husband. Maybe she's trying to cover for herself as well. Yes, we're selling the land and we're giving the full price to those in need. She's fully owning her part in the deception. And so Peter, I'm guessing by now, has, has figured out that, that this is the judgment of God that's happened to Ananias. And, and likely he reasons that God is going to do the same thing to Sapphira. He's going to treat her in the same way if she's conspired in the same sin. And so Peter says to her, you're going to die just like your husband. And again, I, I don't think he's pronouncing a curse. I think he's just telling her what he's confident is going to happen. But wow, this is a tough passage, right? I mean, where's the mercy and the forgiveness that we're so used to and that is such a big theme in God's Word? And and as a result, in the story, everyone's afraid, right? Wouldn't you be afraid? Maybe you are afraid. I mean, Ananias sold property and they gave to the poor, some of it anyway, and this is what happens to them. Many of us haven't even had the faith or the generosity to do that. And we're still alive. Thank God. Here's my observation of why what happens to Ananias and Sapphira doesn't usually happen. But why sometimes it does happen. If you think back, the Bible covers over 1,500 years of history. And we can probably count I'm thinking sort of from the time of Abraham till now. We can probably count on our fingers the number of times something like this happens. Where someone gets dramatically put to death. You know, very few cases over 1500 years. But here's, here's what I notice about when it does happen. It tends to happen when there's a fresh move of God. And God comes to be present among his people in a powerful In the time of Moses, when God first comes to be present with his people in the tabernacle. In the time of Joshua, when a new generation of God's people are entering the promised land and God is very present, leading their armies, fighting their battles. In the time of David, when the ark of God, which was the place where God's presence rested, when it's first coming into Jerusalem, making it God's holy city. And in the time of the early church when God first pours out his spirit among his people at Pentecost. It's like God up front is setting the bar, getting everyone off on the right foot. To put it another way, God is teaching us what it does and what it doesn't mean to have God's presence among us. And so keep this in mind when you pray for a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit or for revival. God's Spirit is not a feel-good spiritual elixir to give us good feelings or a circus act to wow us with amazing miracles so we can be impressed and feel inspired. No, God is different from us. God is holy. God is powerful. God is not present to do our bidding or to make us feel good or to further our agendas or our reputations. No, God is present among us for the sake of his purposes, to lovingly transform us and to form us into a people who can be his family and fulfill his purposes. And in this case, in today's story, it's very important to God That his family gets off on the right foot. That they be generous on the one hand and that they be genuine on the other. God will not have his children faking it, pretending that they're one thing when in fact they're another. Not only does the world have no patience for hypocrites in the church, but evidently God has little patience for them either. Let's pray.